and welcome to Impure Rethought, a podcast about the ways purity, patriarchy, and profit have shaped our culture. Um, Victoria couldn't let <laughs> try again. Victoria couldn't make it today, so we have our very first guest. Um, say hello to Britt. Hello. Hi, Britt. Oh, I'm saying hello to myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Britt, say hello. Hello. <laughs> Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Just Yeah, so my name is Britt. Um, I, oh man, where to start? Uh, I'm a former missionary kid. I was born and raised in Malaysia, um, moved to the U.S. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about everything related to evangelical Christianity. Um, I'm so excited to be a friend of the pod. I'm an avid listener. Um, and uh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I've gone through sort of a, period of deconstruction over the past few years. Uh, to be honest, I don't entirely know how to define what I even think or believe right now. And I'm sort of taking comfort in... Welcome to the club. Yeah, yeah, sort of taking comfort in that being okay. Um, uh, after years of being raised by uh, a father who's an apologetics teacher, um, who's a lovely person, but, you know, kind of that pressure to, like, define all at all times. Has nothing to think about For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so well, so happy to have you on, you. close personal friend of the pod. <laughs> Honored. Where did you get this pure thought and impure thought business? Who are you to decide what is pure and impure? This is the way life is made. There's nothing pure, there's nothing impure. Life is just the way it is. It's for you. A culture that is obsessed with and prioritizes a separation from and control of natural human desire. Um, so our topic today is marriage. Um, as most of you probably know, I'm married. Um, Britt is not married. I am not, to my parents' in disappointment. A serious relationship, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your parents are like, might as well be married. God would look more fondly upon your relationship. Yeah, look, if I went to a courthouse today, they would be happier with me than they are now. (laughs) (laughs) R.I.P. Yep. Um, (laughs) So just a quick content warning at the top. Um, We're going to be discussing purity culture and the abuse that arises from it today. So um, if any topics like sexual or spiritual abuse are particularly sensitive for you, um, might want to skip this one. But uh, for those of you who are still here, we'll dive in. <laughs> um, so before we really get into marriage, I wanted to talk about purity culture specifically because I think uh, we can't really talk about evangelical marriage without talking about that. <laughs> Um, Obviously, we could do a whole episode, and probably will, on purity culture itself and everything that comes with that, but um, this will just be a little crash course on that. So, um, without further ado, (laughs) I feel like I've said like 18 times in this episode, like, let's dive in. So, it's just building the (laughs) suspense. We'll just do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I read some of the book Church 2, How Purity Culture Upholds Abuse and How to Find Healing by Emily Joy Allison in preparation for this episode, Um, and no other sources I found had a better definition of purity culture, so I'm just going to read what she had. Um, She said, Purity culture is the spiritual corollary of rape culture 
created in Christian environments by theologies that teach complete sexual abstinence until legal monogamous marriage between a cisgender heterosexual man and a cisgender heterosexual woman for life or else. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Any thoughts right off the bat? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure so many. I mean, I strangely enough, I do feel like she was one of the first people to explicitly tie purity culture back to rape culture, which is surprising because it's it's there. Um, but it's interesting that she mentioned complete physical purity. Um, and I think that's right. But I know there's a lot more around the fringes of that in terms of like emotional purity spiritual purity um yeah even just like your thoughts aren't safe (laughs) yeah for sure that's so true um yeah you've read the book yourself right I have yeah I blazed through it and cried a lot (laughs) it's rough yeah I like I tried to read it (laughs) quickly and I just it was a lot so I didn't finish it in time for this episode but I fully intend to and already highly recommend it so um yeah so in the book she goes through her definition piece by piece which I think is really helpful to fully understand it so we're gonna do that too um so the phrase complete sexual abstinence is defined differently by different churches families and communities Um, which you kind of touched on a little bit. Um, For me, in the church I went to in high school, it was, like, pretty chill. The rule was basically just don't have sex sex before marriage and you'll be fine. Um, So, like, yeah, pretty chill but still abstinence. Were they really, like, Um, explicitly like, oh, the other stuff doesn't actually count? Or was it just sort of a subconscious understanding? It was more of a subconscious understanding, like, they were like, stay pure, you know, but they just never explicitly explained it, so that's, like, how I understood it, was just, like, don't go all the way, and you'll be fine. Okay, all right. Um, Maybe I understood it wrong, (laughs) maybe I was just reading into it too much, but, uh, but that's how I understood it. But then, um, my high school, which was much more conservative than my church, um, brought in this guy named Greg Speck. Have you heard of him, actually? Because he's, like, kind of a big speaker. Yeah, his name is super familiar. Did he write something? Probably, but his thing is that he, like, goes around to high schools around the country, and I think he goes to some other countries, too, naturally, and just yells at kids to not ever have sex until they're married. Oh, man. And he's really loud. He's one of those, like, don't, you know, like, don't have sex. You like, will get pregnant he loves and die. To <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he he came to our school every single year um, and spoke in chapel. Like, we had a special, like, Greg Speck chapel. I don't think we started doing it until my sophomore year, so it was only, like, three years or something that I saw him, but that was plenty. Um, and I very, yeah, yeah, I very clearly remember him saying, um, that, and tell me if this is something you've heard too. Um, he taught that if a teenage girl leads a teenage boy on and then cuts things off right when it gets steamy, um, because she's trying to stay pure, even if her intentions are good, she can't blame him if he gets violent. Like, he made that very clear. Like, he 
the boy could get angry and like the girl can't blame him because she like did that to him he literally said that oh my goodness like every year it's one of the few things that i remember really clearly yeah so (laughs) from his talks wow no we we did not have that guy or, or anything like that that i remember thankfully but as far as like doing stuff and then stopping i do very clearly remember a passage in a book called uh every woman's battle i don't know if you ever read that talking about no but i've heard about yeah it. <laughs> yeah talking about how uh, as a woman if you did like physical stuff and then you cut it off regularly uh they were like don't be surprised if like for years your body just stops at that point and you'll never like be able to have good sex or or anything like that whoa that is wild. so that was their argument for like don't even start it don't even hold hands kids wow wow (laughs) that is so fascinating they're like this is the reason that women (laughs) can't orgasm it's not the men's fault it's because women had to stop like yeah they went too far and had to stop they did it to themselves they wanted orgasms too fast and too soon (laughs) (laughs) wow 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 that is a take but yeah no violence that is Um, insane yeah I don't remember if he specifically said violence, but I do remember him saying, like, the boy could get angry, and, like, I think that the implication is violence. At least it was in my teenage brain. I mean... And so I was so scared, even subconsciously, like, after I'd kind of forgotten about those talks, like, I was so scared to get myself into that situation, and, like, you know... I was really fortunate to not really, like, get into a dangerous situation like that, but I could absolutely see that being a reason, like, you wouldn't stop because you went too far already and you just feel like you have to, otherwise you're in danger, Mm -hmm. you know? So just very, very scary stuff. Um... So, yeah, obviously his line of complete sexual abstinence was much, like, earlier than my church's... (laughs) Um, my personal line was kind of somewhere in between that I set for myself, (laughs) um, because all my rules were set for myself, like, they didn't really (laughs) come from my parents or anything like that, um, but, yeah, uh, what was the rule for you, or, like, what line did you set? Yeah, so when I was 13, I had to do this thing called Passport to Purity, um, shout out to anybody else who's (laughs) done that, uh, it was... It was pretty embarrassing. I, like, hid between the bed and the wall when my mom made me do it with her. I was 13. But there was this cliff. 13. Oh, it's Fenway. Um, (laughs) Yeah, there was this cliff with, like, uh, acts, sexual acts, quote-unquote, leading closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. And if you fell off the cliff, that was sexual intercourse. Um, And so it was, like, like hand-holding, kissing, heavy petting. To this day, I don't know what heavy petting is. Um, Dylan and I joke about it. I know. That was like a big... (laughs) Stroke your head really strongly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, my mom was like, draw a line where you'd stop. But I was 13 and had no libido whatsoever. And I drew it like before hand holding. I was like, I'm never going to hold hands. Um, But (laughs) as I got older, personally, I always kind of planned to like kiss before marriage I didn't want to be one of those evangelicals who like had their first kiss on their wedding day because that's just so awkward yeah um but yeah Yeah, I was not planning on having premarital sex at all 
um, Twilight really helped also cement that choice for me. I, you know, <laughs> written by a Mormon That's author. So yeah, she was like really into the, oh, yeah. the little premarital sex thing. So, uh, True. yeah, that was the plan. <laughs> oh my god. Um, sorry, I'm like so sweaty in my glasses. It's so hot here. Oh no, yeah. Oh, and <laughs> to add as a caveat to that, I. I don't know. As far as, like, other stuff goes, quote-unquote, I don't think I had much of an idea of what all of that encompassed, really. And so I think in my head it was kind of a gray area that I just assumed I would not ever have to make a decision about because, I don't know, like, boys didn't really like me. I didn't have, like, a relationship in high school. I, you know, I just, I kind of stayed dating freaked me out so I just stayed away from all of that honestly (laughs) fair yeah yeah um yeah for me as I said as a tryhard Christian teen my line was like closer to Greg Speck's line um I just basically believed like the less sexual stuff you did the more pure you were um it was like a spectrum to me (laughs) um this is embarrassing. <laughs> I think I've told you this, but uh, when Daniel, my now husband, for anyone who doesn't know, um, when Daniel and I started dating when we were like 15, <laughs> uh, we decided we wouldn't kiss for more than like 10 seconds. Oh, mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Specifically. <laughs> that's the cutoff point. And that was our line. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. That's too funny. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I came up with that. It's a very, like, me thing. I'm like, we have to have a clear rule. And we did not, like, we didn't, we weren't very good at, like, sticking did to it. Did you have, like, a stopwatch the there? You just, like, start. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, no, I would just count in my head. I remember very wow, specifically. Wow, really like... easy to get into making out that way, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. Actually, it really sets the mood. My friends, I forgot about this. My friends and I got really into like courtship for a while because of you guessed it. I kissed dating goodbye. Um, so yep. we were like very. We we had what we called courtship sleepovers, and we would we would have sleepovers, and we would talk about like our future husbands, and and I, it's funny. It was like all wrapped up with like dating and stuff. But I feel like for us, that was a real outlet to like talk about sex and talk about boundaries. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think I, maybe I was more uh, specifically stricter when we were talking about that, but over the years, it, it got fuzzier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I feel that. Um, yeah, later, so Daniel and I only dated for like nine months or something in high school, and then um, broke up and started dating again in college. There's our like little story, but um, when we started dating again, um, I was so, I felt so, so guilty about, like, us going too far when we were in high school and just felt seconds. awful about it. So I set our boundary <laughs> at, like, we weren't even gonna kiss until we were engaged. It didn't last long, but that was my goal. <laughs> so, yeah, embarrassing, embarrassing stuff. You do what you but, gotta uh, do, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so that's the complete sexual abstinence part of the definition. <laughs> um, the next part, legal non, or no, not non-monogamous, legal monogamous marriage. Um, <laughs> there's some polyamory in there. Yeah. 
Um, so not partnership, which is not ordained by God, state, and ceremony. As they love to And me. not polyamory, which is basically adultery or cheating, according to the church. So, yeah, that one's pretty self-explanatory. Uh, the next part, between a cisgender heterosexual man and a cisgender heterosexual woman, also pretty self-explanatory. Um, cisgender means you identify with the gender identity assigned to you at birth. Um, so basically, there's no room within purity culture for trans or gender non-conforming people to get married or have sex, and neither is there room for non-heterosexual people to do so. So we'll get into the church's demonization of LGBTQ plus people uh, in part two of this, because it's such a big topic, it needed its own episode. But... um. Yeah, so we won't be talking about that today, but (laughs) in the future. Um, But for now, just know that within purity culture, you have to be straight and identify with with the gender you were assigned at birth. Um, For life is the next part. Uh, So basically, if divorce is acceptable, which it in a lot of churches is not, Uh, It's only under certain circumstances, like it has to be extreme, like cheating or abuse. Unless you're John Piper. Um, Often not even abuse, it's like just cheating. So, um, but yeah, like I said, some traditions issue divorce altogether, no matter what happened. Uh, Basically, divorce is never the answer, and couples who are considering it just need to pray harder or lean on God. So, cool, cool, cool. Um, And then the last part, or else, signifies the threat, uh, whatever it may be, of what happens if you don't do these things. Um, So I don't know about you, but for me, the threat looming over my head was just the idea that, like, you physically can't come back from having sex before marriage. Um... It was like, in my head, the one exception to God's forgiveness, wiping the slate clean. Oh, man. Because you're a woman. If you're <laughs> a man, like, God's, for- yeah. God's forgiveness men, is fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Men, for some reason, get a free pass on this. I mean, I know why, but, like, it, it logically, logically why? Sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Basically, like, I believed that God would forgive me whatever happened, and that did include, like, sexual sin, um, as long as I was appropriately ashamed and regretful for right. it. Yeah, gotta self-flagellate <laughs> um, But a physically, bit. yeah, physically I would never be the same because of all those, like, wild metaphors, um, which, do you have any wild ones to share? Like, what was the weirdest one you ever heard? Ooh. Man, um, well, the one that I had to do was we had a pink heart and a black heart, and we glued it together, and then we had to try to rip the hearts apart, and oh, look, they have little parts of the other heart on them. This is what happens to you. Ew. <laughs> yeah, I know. Really? Yeah, it's mm, it's so interesting that for you, it was like primarily like an identity thing. I feel like purity culture the threats that they have it's either like an identity threat so like you will be forever changed or like broken 
Um, and then there's like mm-hmm. the community expulsion threat. Like, yeah. yeah, you you won't belong anymore. And then there's like the the happiness threat. Like, because mm-hmm. you did this, mm-hmm. you will never have a fulfilling future relationship or, you know, future sexual relationship or really anything. Yeah, so, the heart. Absolutely wild. Yeah. What about you? Um, I think I mostly only remember like the rose being oh, crumpled of up. Of course, yep. <laughs> yeah. Or just like even a petal. I remember a Kleenex one time was like, you know, you blow into the Kleenex oh, and like gross. You never get it clean or whatever. Oh my god. Yeah, very gross. Yeah. <laughs> Kids, yeah. when you have sex, it's just like blowing your I mean, I, they're not wrong. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, we're not going to go too far into yeah, that. Yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> not that far <laughs> off, but very gross. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's the definition. Um, I think that's a pretty, like, pretty all-encompassing one. Uh, I could not have defined it better myself. Um, one other part of the definition that I want to kind of talk about is... Um, in the beginning of it, she talks about, <clears throat> excuse me, like the theologies that teach phrase. Um, basically, what she makes clear throughout her book is that purity culture is a feature of bad theology. Um, she mentions the Gospel Coalition's push a few years ago to, quote, develop a positive culture of purity, essentially saying that the teachings aren't the problem, it's just the way that they're taught. Um, And for the uninitiated, the Gospel Coalition is a neo-Calvinist evangelical website. (laughs) An absolute nightmare, don't recommend. Um, (laughs) But if you, if you, like, need to psych yourself up to go to one of those, uh, one of those rooms where you pay to go, like, destroy things, I think that would be a really good fuel for that. Anyway, (laughs) Um, so she makes it very clear that, like, The teachings themselves are the problem. It's not just the way they're taught. Um, And they're a direct result of the belief that the modern Bible is completely true and to be taken literally. A lot of people believe this so firmly that they think people who don't believe this aren't actual Christians. But there are plenty of not only individual Christians, but entire denominations that don't believe the Bible. (laughs) Don't believe the Bible is completely inerrant or literally true. Um, so, yeah. I was going to say, and some that do believe that it's literally true, but have somehow found a way to interpret it to be... Like, my parents are, are more egalitarian, and I know they would say that a lot of how some denominations communicate uh, stuff about purity culture they don't agree with, but functionally even if, like you said, even if you change the way you're saying the teachings, the content still deep down there is the same. Yeah, exactly. I remember when I was like, um, my senior year of college, I don't know if you remember like the big, um, the big like drama in Newburgh, our senior year of, um, the, I mean, there was plenty of drama, I guess, but like, yeah, the yeah. Quaker, the Quaker Church. Yeah, the the biggest drama of the town. Um, I like wrote a story on that and like interviewed people about it for a journalism class I was taking. 
um, which was great. I learned a ton and it was actually like a huge part of my deconstruction. But, um, excuse me. Uh, but basically the issue was like the Quaker church, like the biggest Quaker church in town couldn't agree on how to include, um, LGBTQ people. Uh, and so a portion of the church was splitting off because they believed in, um, fully being welcoming and affirming. So I was talking to a lot of people who were splitting off and I remember I was going to, uh, some event with them or something and like to one of them was a George Fox professor one of them was like the leader of the new church and they were just talking to each other I was just kind of listening and they were talking just about the theology of LGBTQ people and like how purity culture is really um damaging and terrible and um they you know, they were making a whole bunch of great points, but then at the end they were like, oh, but yeah, no, you can't have sex before marriage. (laughs) Like, still, like, we still definitely believe that. We're not making that argument. And I was like, like, where does it end? You know, like, (laughs) that's such a weird line to draw. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Very much one of those, like, the theology is the problem, but not this part. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it was very shocking to me. And I don't know if they still believe that. They might have been, um, I don't know, like the George Fox professor might have just been like, if I'm on the record, like, don't don't put in that I think it's okay. Don't lead the kids you know? astray. Yeah, I mean, or like her job could have been oh, on the line true. if like that got out that she believed that's that. That's very so, true, actually. So, wow. yeah. It's funny. I feel like that was sort of a last ditch attempt by a lot of affirming Christians to try to get the other side to like see their legitimacy. And it's just like, no guys, there, even if you embrace the whole like no sex before marriage thing, they're still never going to accept you, (laughs) which is horrible. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That whole thing was just a nightmare, but, um, great learning experience for me (laughs) personally. In Church 2, Emily Joy Allison uh, says on the, like, theology being the problem, uh, she says, quote, reducing purity culture to Christians just being mean or extreme about certain theologies belies the very real harm done by those theologies themselves and allows people to benefit from looking like they are allies in the fight against abuse while simultaneously upholding the beliefs that create the culture of abuse in the first, first place. Um, we'll talk a lot more on the church upholding a culture of abuse in a minute. <laughs> Not quite going to get into that, but I thought that was a really good quote. So, um, yeah, now I want to talk about dating with the intent to marry and just like general Christian dating. Uh, you mentioned you read I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Yep. Um, and you did the, uh, purity, what was that? Oh, Passport to Purity. Passport to Purity. Did that include, like, a purity ring? Yeah, it did. Um, and ironically, I actually lost the purity ring. Um, had never kissed anybody (laughs) ever, but, like, I lost it. And I just remember (laughs) being so afraid that everybody would, like, take it as a symbolic thing. It's like, oh yeah. no, they're going to see, they're going to know, even though nothing had yeah. happened, oh, obviously. No. 
Yeah. That's so funny. I would totally have done the same thing. Um, did your parents have any, like, specific uh, rules in place for you around dating? Like, were you not allowed to date before you were 16 or so, anything like that? I mean, I'm the first kid, uh, so I think my parents figured they would take it as it came which e- with each of the kids and the moment just mm-hmm. never came for them with me um I sort of <laughs> I sort of instinctively knew that it would be number one an awkward conversation it would involve my parents being way more involved in my very personal life than I wanted them to be and I also yeah. had a complete inability to like lie to my parents in high school too so the idea <laughs> of like having a, a secret like relationship or anything just never would have happened um, but I mean, it was sort of understood when I, yeah, yeah, it was sort of understood when I got my purity ring that like, you know, you'll stay pure, you won't have sex before marriage. And, and the communication was very much because I think my parents are, they see themselves slightly more, less fundy, you know, it was that we're yeah. not telling you to do this because it's like a rule and you're going to get in trouble if you break it. It's because this is ultimately what is best for you and we want what's best for you, which yeah. is a lot harder to actually like weed out of your subconscious at the end of the day. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. I always like... No offense to your parents, I oh, guess. No. <laughs> I always get I always get the impression from you that they're like super fundamentalist, so it's interesting that they like don't really see themselves that they way. They are it's really hard to explain because they're not what you would call quote unquote strict parents. They they didn't like give us lots of rules or come down really hard on us on things, but they they were very concerned about right belief, not right behavior. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, they believed right belief would lead to right behavior. Um, And so everything would lead to like long discussions until your line of thinking was in line with what they thought. So interesting. Yeah. This really tracks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like how you are now. (laughs) For real. I mean, it took so long for me to even just figure out what I thought about things because in my mind I was always subconsciously like, okay, there's a right way of thinking about this and what will my parents think? Um, so mm-hmm. honestly, in some ways it's worse. Cause I, I feel like, I mean, you can't compare this stuff, but I feel like if my parents had just been like, no, ands, ifs, or buts, like this is how it is in our house. You can disagree, but like, this is how it is. I could have just been like, well, I don't agree with that. Um, but yeah, it gives you something to like disagree with. Yeah. But it sort of felt Whereas like if it's all kind of like, yeah, yeah, it felt like a long process of just like them trying to like chip away at my mind to mold me into the person that they thought I should be because <laughs> that's what they believed Christian parenting was. <laughs> yeah. <Yep. laughs> but no, they don't wow, see themselves as fundy at all. They see themselves as they're like, they believe women can preach. So, you know. Mm-hmm. liberal-ish, yeah. not really. Yeah. They're probably, like, their beliefs are probably pretty in line with, like, the church I went to in high school. Mm-hmm. It sounds like. What denomination? Like, they kind of see themselves as non-denominational. Ah, yeah. So just, like, general evangelical. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah, and very, like, hip. They were one of the first churches to have, like, an in-church 
coffee shop oh and my like God, the coffee it's shops. like the go-to place in santa cruz so yeah so funny super hipster yeah i mean my parents were with ywam which is youth with a mission um that was our missionary org and it's i mean it's it's in the name youth like it's very young very hip very uh pentecostal um so oh yeah yes. yeah so all the music all of the like the young people the charisma you know it, it doesn't bring to mind sort of stodgy you know baptist sure. fundamentalism but i mean so many of the same things snuck in there just with different language yeah for me like i didn't really have any dating rules from my parents um I honestly didn't even really have that many rules from my parents in general. (laughs) Um, It was somewhat similar to yours where, like, you know, like, talk to us about things, like, kind of figure stuff out for yourself. Um, But pretty much the only rule was, like, just a general don't be dumb. Oh, man. (laughs) Like, (laughs) So you were like, got it, 10 seconds kissing, like done that's what yeah. I got out of this <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> um yeah so that was that was the rule with like everything like oh you want to do drugs like Don't well drugs like make you dumb so it might be kind of a dumb decision like, there's ways oh, to yeah, do okay. drugs in a that's smart true. way I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah but that was like our only Or at least my only rule. Like, I really didn't have strict rules for my parents, but I set strict rules for myself. I was going to say, if you leave that vacuum open for, you know, those of us high achievers raised in evangelicalism, it's like, uh, you won't give me anything. Well, I'll give myself an even harder set of rules because I'm just that good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, like, also looking back, it was me, like, trying to create some stability for myself yeah. as, like, an undiagnosed ADHD teen, you know? Yeah. Just, like, felt... I was always trying to figure out, like, my identity and stuff like that, which I think is why that threat of um, of uh, not following purity culture's rules, like, the biggest threat for me was the threat to my identity. Because right. I was just always trying to figure out who I was. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I never got a purity ring or anything, oh, you but must I have really, been really sad wanted about one. that. Yeah, that was like <laughs> I a was... big rite of passage. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I remember when my best friend in high school got a purity ring. We were like fourteen or fifteen or something. Um, and I, having set my strict rules, thought it was so cool that her parents did that. <laughs> and I went home and asked my mom if she would give me a purity ring. And she was like, what is that? And I explained. <laughs> I explained. And she basically was like, that sounds really weird. I'm not getting you one of those. And now you're like, wow, and, dodged a bullet. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, and she also said, I remember this in the same conversation. Uh, basically, she said, deciding whether or not to have sex is a really personal decision. And I'm not going to make that for you. Wow. Which, like... A brag. I love my mom. I was gonna but say, what <laughs> at the time, I was like, "Mom, what must that have been you don't like? understand me?" <laughs> You're like, "No, mom, I want yeah. you to make this decision for me." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just really, really wanted like the outward symbol of purity <laughs> so for myself. Here, so, here's a question: When you were having all these discussions and setting all these rules for yourself about purity, did you at all like 
have any kind of sex drive whatsoever. Um, not to begin with, because I, like, hadn't really dated anyone, but, like, I started dating Daniel when I was 15, and that was, like, when it kicked in. (laughs) The sexual awakening. (laughs) So. Yeah, because I was making all these decisions, like, not even, I don't even think I'd, like, hit that point in puberty. I was, like, 13, and I was just like, boys are gross, you know? Um, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. Weird that they kind of press you to make those decisions for a lot of people before they're even knowing what they're talking about. Definitely. Yeah. I think like, I think I, I like largely ignored it before it like felt like it applied to me. Um, <laughs> and then suddenly I like my sex drive arrived and I was like, oh my god, I need to make rules. Like, you know, I need, because I'd been hearing about it peripherally, but hadn't really, like, mm-hmm. made any moves on it, I guess. Right. Anyway. Um, so you mentioned I Kissed Dating Goodbye um, by Joshua Harris. You read that, right? Or did you? Oh yeah, many times. And also Boy Meets Girl, <laughs> the sequel. Oh, fascinating. Um, what, like, how did that influence you? I guess you talked about it a little already, but... Yeah, I mean, uh, to caveat, my, my parents also, like, were... My, none of this, like, purity culture book stuff outside of the passport purity thing. My parents didn't didn't give it to me and tell me to read it. It was all me. Um, yeah. I found it in, like, our... Relatable. Yeah, yeah. I found it in, like, our secret bookshelf upstairs. It was all the, like, adult dating books or whatever that my parents would try to hide that people had given them over the years uh but yeah it uh I think it really cemented in me this idea that yeah you don't date or even just like get involved with somebody unless you could see yourself marrying them um Mm -hmm. and that involving your parents very intensely in your relationship is a good thing which I never really vibed with Um, Mm. but the certainty thing really stuck with me, um, for years, uh, to the point where I, I just felt such intense anxiety, even like going on dates with people because I was like, I, how can I have any certainty, uh, that, you know, this date is going to go somewhere. And of course you're supposed to date to find that out, but that was not in my worldview at all even when I wanted it to be in my worldview and I wanted to just be able to go on dates. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very like conflicting rule. Yeah. Because it's like, don't date anyone you can't see marrying, but you need to date to figure out if you can see yourself marrying them. Well, and that's why it almost pushes a pseudo like arranged marriage thing where it's like, have your parents pick out someone for you to court. Um, They'll be like, (laughs) oh my God, I know. And it's just like, ugh. But yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of pressure, and honestly, I mean, for somebody who's already very anxiety prone, it was just it was a cut it off right at the pass sort of a thing. Um, the moment you yeah. start even like being attracted to somebody or or thinking, oh my goodness, I'd like to see where this goes, that that expression of interest also signals uh, unpredictability or like you'd like to see where this goes, which means you don't know where it will go so hard pass yeah yeah <laughs> poor little you oh, I it's just so anxiety ridden <laughs> so sad in the fetal position anytime she had to open hinge 
yeah <laughs> oh my god um yeah so i kissed dating goodbye for context came out in 1997 and like brit said popularized the idea of courtship and group dating for christian couples to help them remain pure and get to know each other as future spouses um harris the author has since disavowed it um for its contributions to purity culture but like it still contributed he owes <laughs> whether me he likes it or money. not so <laughs> yeah he owes a lot of people therapy yeah. money. um i personally never read it although it was one of those things like i was like man i should really read that it was always like on my reading list but i never really read books like that because <laughs> of my adhd i think probably <laughs> dodged a bullet that's all i'm yeah. saying <laughs> Yeah, but it, like, it was such a part of the culture that I, like, absorbed its messaging still. Yep, yep. Um, Even 15 years after it came out. So, uh, yeah. Um, Anyway, (laughs) next, uh, excuse me, I want to talk about shame and the part that that plays um, in purity culture and marriage and all these things. Um, Basically, it plays a huge part in evangelical churches and not just in relation to purity culture. Um, For the more repentance-focused churches, there's a huge emphasis placed on constantly confessing your sins to God and recognizing your own wretchedness and therefore your need for a savior. Um, In my experience, and like, correct me if I'm wrong or like if this isn't something that you've seen but there's a lot of lip service paid to emphasizing the difference between guilt and shame oh yeah but like functionally how is yeah functionally they're the same and like there's inherent shame to me in recognizing that you're a terrible person that needs to be saved yeah exactly how can you tell somebody like you have just done the wrongest thing ever and also inherently you are so wrong and so broken but don't spiral into shame about that thankfully you're yeah. so bad that god came to forgive you despite how horrible you are but but don't spiral yeah yeah you're so bad and would have gone to hell if god didn't die and also throw in a little you. like oh but yeah you're also made in the image of god in there you know just sprinkle it in to kind of confuse the message (laughs) yeah such a mess um this is obviously like a super personal topic so share however much or little you want but I'm curious how you've seen the relationship between shame and purity specifically play out oh man um I mean quite a bit honestly like growing up I always felt like I was, you know, way too sexual. Um, And I think this is an experience for a lot of especially, you know, people who identify as women or are perceived as women in uh, evangelical Christianity, where you're supposed to sort of be this like passive receptor um, and not really have much of a sexuality of your own. And honestly, I mean, I realize I'm a honestly pretty normal person in my understanding, but I definitely felt like I was, I was way too sexual. I was like, I was like a man, you know, um, goodness, women don't have fantasies. <laughs> women don't, you know, want to have yeah. sex. God forbid. Yeah. Um, oh my God. Yeah. We'll get into that. Yeah. Sure. Oh yeah. So even just like as an individual, before I even started, you know, dating or anything like that, <clears throat> I just felt very ashamed of being 
the way that I was internally. Um, and then when I, you know, got older and kind of started to have my first, you know, sexual experiences, uh, even though I wasn't like having quote unquote sex sex, because the distinction is apparently a thing in evangelical culture, <laughs> um, yeah. I felt that because I had done something out of like sexual attraction that I had used someone, um, that was like language. Oh. Yeah. So I, Whoa. And, and it was within the context of like a relationship where I was not necessarily being treated the best. Like, um, you know, it was another 18 year old guy and they're just not always usually the most conscientious of humans. No, no 18 year olds are, but yeah, like instead of feeling like hurt, like, oh, maybe I feel like I'm being taken advantage of or or I'm not getting what I want out of this relationship. I was like, you deserve whatever hurt you get because you used somebody for, like, oh sexual gratification um, or any of that. And I I told myself that, and I pushed down a lot of my, like, hurt um, from, like, a relational standpoint and very much turned it into, like, shame but also, like, this is right and this is correct and you just need to take your medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I know. That's awful. I feel I'm for, so sorry. I feel for a little 19 year old me, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Um, yeah. I think for me, the sense of shame when I did something considered sinful was so intense that it like lowered my own self-worth, oh, which like, that's kind of the goal of the yeah. <laughs> belief system, right? If we're supposed to, like, recognize that we're so sinful inherently. Um, I was also always taught that sexual sin was the only sin that was against yourself. Oh, did you ever hear that? Yes, I did. Yeah, it's worse because it's yeah, against yourself. that always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all the other sins were against other people, but sexual sin was, like, between you and God only, well, you know, and, like really intense yeah it's against yourself but if you believe that like the holy spirit indwells you it's also like against what which just side note the holy spirit indwelling you has its own setup just like like ooh, it gets a little it gets a little spicy the way they talk about it sometimes (laughs) yeah but like yeah it's like no like that's against god because god is inside you (laughs) nobody else is allowed to be inside you (laughs) (laughs) i know i'm sorry i'm sorry Uh, oh my god uh, no, I mean, that is how it sounds. Yeah, yeah. So, like, <laughs> you're not wrong. Uh, yeah, a wild view, honestly, that, like, sexual sin, it, like, gives it the gravity that, like, it it almost felt, like, bigger to me than, like, murder. You know, it's, like, the biggest sin. Not that I'm, like, going around murdering people, but, like... They weren't giving us rings you know? to, like, not murder people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah guys i got my murder but, like, ring i don't know <laughs> the amount that it was talked about and like the emphasis placed on it it just felt like it was the worst thing you could ever do but if you actually um, asked them and called them out on it i'll bet they would like be like no like they would have like lip service yeah, of like yeah <laughs> yeah for sure um yeah so this kind of goes back to what you were talking about, um, about, like, you kind of seeing yourself as deserving because you felt so ashamed 
you saw yourself as like deserving of whatever bad things happened to you um that is like the culture of abuse that like churches create um in church two emily joy allison talks about this a lot um she says quote she has a ton of good quotes about this by the way but um she says quote shame turns the lights off in a room and abuse thrives where there is secrecy and cover Oh, man. Um, basically, yeah, shame isolates and keeps people quiet. So when a sexual abuse scandal happens in a church, which apparently it inevitably does and happens so often, um, just look at the hundreds of cases that have come to light just in the last few years. Um, the culture of shame keeps victims quiet and lets churches continue running as if nothing happened. Um, she argues that the way evangelical churches operate is effectively a giant flashing welcome sign to abusers. Um, she says, quote, I'm picturing one of those light up arrows outside a motel reading vacancy, except instead it says you will definitely be able to find your next victim here and we probably won't even press charges. Thoughts? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. I mean from what I've seen, there's, they, they seem to understand grace and forgiveness really well when it's in the context of forgiving abusers, honestly, yeah. because it's a, oh, well, they had a moment of weakness, like they've <clears throat> repented. Um, we don't, we don't want them to live in shame. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know, for those who were abused, it's, oh, well, you know, let's just move on. And I don't know, are you sure you weren't somehow involved in this? I, I, I'm honestly... What were you wearing? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm kind of trying to figure out why, what the distinction is. And honestly, the only thing I can come down to is like Christian patriarchy, that many abusers are usually men and many mm-hmm. victims are usually women. Um, and I yeah, think... Yeah, again, because that's the culture yeah. that they create yeah is men have all the power and women are supposed to be like meek and quiet yeah and I mean when you have like leadership structures largely made up of men um they see Mm -hmm. which is kind of a tell honestly they see themselves in this person um they've created a culture where like sex is this like shameful shadow thing and men are taught that they can't control themselves and and yeah, sex gets weird in evangelical circles. It's all very, like, pushed down, and it morphs into this weird, dark thing. So they look at these yeah. abusers and go, well, they're but for the grace of God, go I. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Um, yeah, I don't even remember, like, learning the word consent, really, oh, no. until, like, later in high school, at least, or, like, maybe into college. Yep. I honestly, like, it wasn't a huge idea to me until probably, like, around the Me Too movement. Yep. Yeah. I didn't even think about it. Yeah. Is so scary. (laughs) We just, like, didn't even know the word, let alone, like, we're taught to always, I don't know, always need to give our consent. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, 
we were given external gating things that we were told were for our protection. That's how it was sold. Yeah. So like only within the context of marriage. Um, and marriage is somehow this magical sphere of protection where when you're in that, everything will be okay. Because presumably you marry somebody who loves you and who respects you. Um, but there's so many assumptions wrapped up in that instead of just coming right out and saying, you know, people should respect you. People should communicate with you. People should ask your consent. It's just yeah. rolled up into this marriage. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And that leads us really nicely into the next section. Um, the idea that, like, you have to be legally married. Like, legally married. Yeah, yeah that piece of paper. Um, yeah, that, that means everything. Um, suddenly, you're married and sex is no longer a sin. You signed a piece of paper, you're good to go. But, like, the cycle of shame doesn't just end there. Um, so we've talked a lot about sex outside of marriage and the expectations surrounding that. Um, but I want to talk briefly about the expectations for sex within marriage. Um, do you remember the book Loveology? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I would sure rather not remember that book. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I reread parts of it, and it was... I'm so sorry. Not fun. Yep. <laughs> um, so that book came out in 2013. It was written by a guy named John Mark Comer. Evangelical darling. Um, yeah, yeah. It was all the rage when it came out. Oh, my God. Fenway just jumped up so fast. Jeez. Making so much noise. <laughs> oh, come here. Okay. Um... <laughs> It, yeah, it was all the rage when it came out. Um, So much so that the church I went to in high school literally did a whole series on it. And John Mark Comer and his parents came to speak during the series. Oh, my. And I'm pretty sure they were, like, they came back multiple times after that. Like, our pastor was good friends with them and, yeah, a whole thing. Um, But anyway, my church was, like, the biggest fan of that book. Um, as part of the series, one of our regular pastors um, who had gotten married like a year earlier or something. So he was an um, expert by that point on marriage. Yeah, yeah. she was actually a female pastor. Progressive. Um, progressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she had gotten married like a year earlier um, and she got up and got up in front of the church and told us that on her honeymoon, she and her husband couldn't like bring themselves to have sex for the first few days even though they were finally allowed to um and it was because of the extreme guilt and shame that had surrounded it um i thought that was like the bravest thing anyone could admit to like it was mind-blowing to me that she would talk about it that way um so that sermon really stood out to me because it was one of the first times i'd heard that perspective from anyone um But as far as I remember, like, she didn't really have a solution beyond (laughs) stay pure, but try not to feel guilty about it. That's that's always what (laughs) happens. Like, instead of being like, maybe the whole way we're setting this up is setting us up for failure. It's, but just really be secure in the fact that, like, sex within marriage is great and it's supposed to bring you lots of joy. So just, (laughs) just really just remember that and be better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Um, so another 
great example of um, maybe we should just get rid of this theology. <laughs> maybe the theology itself is bad. <sighs> They're going to keep trying to find... Since we can't explain, like, how to make it right not feel awful for people Nikki, they're gonna keep trying to find new ways to rephrase this until like the cows come home they're gonna be like if we just find the right way to explain this to people they'll get it it's like no yeah no. <laughs> it's the content that's the problem yeah exactly um so that's like a pretty common experience even though like not too many people we're talking about it at the time. I think more people are talking about it now in, like, the wake of Church 2, especially. Um, but, yeah, it's very common among evangelical women, specifically. Um, I read an article from Jezebel, and they said, quote, Immediately upon the wedding night, women are expected to transform from a chaste protector of purity into an eager sexual partner geared to prevent her husband's sinful eyes from straying. So it's just so much responsibility. And it's all on Put on you. the women. Yeah. Yeah. We're supposed to be the gatekeepers, yeah. but also the, like, I don't know, people to encourage our... Because apparently our husbands are going to leave unless we actively do something. It's not like they married, you know, us for any other reason but to have sex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, when I was engaged during... My senior year of college, uh, I had another friend who was also engaged at, around the same time, and so naturally we talked a lot about marriage and what the Bible had to say about it. Um, I was just starting to deconstruct around this time, and honestly, a big part of my deconstruction was like really starting to examine what the church had to say about sex and marriage and all of that. Um, and the church's, like, obsession with sex. Oh, my goodness. It started to feel really weird to me. Yep. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I was starting to deconstruct, and at the same time, my friend seemed to be getting, like, more and more involved in her church and her faith and stuff. Um, and I remember her telling me about a women's conference she'd recently gone to at her church. I might have told you this before. <laughs> But it's such a wild thing. Um, she sat in on a session there. And I don't remember the topic of the whole session. It was probably something like um, what a biblical marriage looks like or how to be like a godly wife or whatever. Um, but in that session, she told me that they said that sometimes serving your husband means saying yes to sex with him even when you don't want to because men are naturally more sexual and they need sex more often yeah. than women so like it's like your duty to provide that for your husband disgusting i remember reading that stuff um and i i remember Yikes. they really set it up like you know the man will like be in pain or you know yeah. like it will physically be you are doing harm to this man <laughs> Yeah, absolutely unhinged. I read an awful, it was like the worst thing I've ever read, um, an article called How to Enjoy Sex with Your Wife When It's Painful for Her. <gasps> oh my god. Genuinely, like, so horrifying. I I honestly didn't even finish it because it, it was so awful to read. Oh my but god, if somebody is enjoying it seems like, having sex with you when you're in pain, that is genuinely horrific 
Yeah, it is. This whole blog seemed to just be, like, one guy's rantings about, like, why it's okay for him to be the worst person in the world. Was it a guy (laughs) named Larry Solomon, by any chance? I don't know his name, but the blog was called, um... Biblical gender roles. <gasps> it's Larry Solomon. Oh my god. Oh my god. My oh friends no. and I. So he's like a big enough name that you know. No, no. It's, <laughs> this, it's, is. this is his blog, and my friends and I found it in college, and we would like read it out loud to each other because this man is genuinely unhinged. Uh, he advocates yeah. for like taking it's away horrifying. your wife's like credit cards to like punish her, and like oh, oh my word, he and <laughs> yeah, he introduces himself, and he's like, I don't have a degree in theology, but like. I am just as capable of, you know, explaining the Bible. <laughs> but to I am a man. People. Yeah. So I know. Yeah. Oh my God. That's hilarious. I knew it sounded like him. That's so funny. I can't believe you know who that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was him. So horrifying to read. And like, I read the, com- there were six comments on that article and none of them were like what the fuck is this yeah that's <laughs> they not were his all target audience like, great article gonna <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> give this to my wife <laughs> <laughs> yeah seriously oh my god anyway <laughs> absolutely horrifying um i didn't say much and anyway, like back to my friend telling me this i didn't say much to her at the time It didn't sit quite right with me, but I, like, didn't really have the words yet to explain why or, like, why that was wrong. But it's not an uncommon view, as I'm sure you can attest to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Among conservative Christians, the idea that men need more sex than women just naturally is really mainstream. So much so that... Like I said earlier, I was even hearing it in high school chapel. Yeah. Like, we don't need to hear that. It's like up there with, like, food, water, shelter, sex. Sex. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so talk about a culture of abuse. (laughs) If you ask me, women saying yes to sex even though they don't want it is not true consent. No. No. Like, Like, that's not even up They've been coerced into... Yeah, they've been coerced into feeling like it's their duty to their husband. And feeling like... And something that they agreed to always just by getting married, you know? Yeah, no, that's actually really true. You, like, sign a blank check for consent when you get married, according Mm -hmm. to evangelicals. Yeah. I remember when I first heard the term marital rape, like, I was still... I was pretty evangelical still, I think... Um, because I remember thinking like, oh, but you're married. Like, like, how can it, you know, be rape then? Uh, but it can. And this is how. So, yeah. Very embarrassing to admit that I thought that, but. Hey, we were all there at some point. Well. Yeah. Some of yeah. us were. I, <laughs> it's always shocking to me to remember that there were people who were raised with like totally normal ideas of relationships and marriage. I know. What must, what must I know. that have been like? It could have been me, but for some reason I was like, no. <laughs> I really <laughs> I identify these with rules. that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. So genuinely horrifying. Uh, I think about that uh conversation with my friend a lot it's like we're not really friends now i hope she's okay i hope so too 
Yeah, it's very concerning. And I hope, like, whoever was saying that in the conference is like, okay, they don't sound okay, but... Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, aside from sex, I wanted to talk about what a biblical marriage is even supposed to look like, according to evangelicals. So, I reread parts of Loveology <laughs> to get this definition, um, because... It's very readable. I think that that's the reason that it was so popular when it came out. It sounded really edgy, but it was, like, not really saying anything new. Um, but he says that marriage was created originally for four reasons, which are friendship, gardening, sexuality, and family. Gardening. Very, one of those stands out. <laughs> we'll go through each of them. <laughs> but... Uh, first, friendship, pretty self-explanatory. He just basically is like, your spouse should be your best friend. Very normal view, um, both within Christianity and without, I think, um, at least modernly. <laughs> anyway, um, gardening, obviously, the one that stands out. This one was the weirdest and was like <laughs> genuinely hard to understand. This section is just like so winding, like... <laughs> It's a real stretch. Um, he gets on his soapbox about how we shouldn't work to live. We should live to work. But don't worry. God's definition of work is less about toiling and more about calling. A nicer word for work, he says, is gardening. So what is your gardening project? Your spouse should be there to help you complete it and figure it out and see it through. <laughs> so... Sounds like a that's, very... That's what gardening is. Sounds like a very a complicated real way of just saying you guys should be going the same direction in life. Yeah, I think so. But it's, yeah, it's basically like, like, figure out your calling and make sure, like, your spouse is on board with it. So, which is, like, good. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Um, a lot of what he was saying, although it wasn't super explicit, but he hinted at like the man's calling supersedes should the woman be the one yeah should be the one that like you both follow um but both of you need to figure out your calling beforehand but the wife's calling should align with the husband's um he also <laughs> takes this opportunity to completely destroy non-christian marriages <laughs> um <laughs> no coming back from so this, this one is, So this is kind of a long quote, but I felt like we needed the whole thing to really get a feel for what he's going for here. So he says, quote, couples who exist simply for one another are doomed to failure. I'm sure this sounds familiar. If you're if the point of your marriage is your marriage, it will collapse in on itself. If the end goal of your relationship is your relationship, it will self-destruct. You can only sit at a coffee shop and stare into each other's eyes for so long. At some point, you have to get up and do something. That's why, in an ideal world, you should have a sense of your calling before you get married, and the marriage should be built around that calling. End quote. <laughs> Again, seems like a kind of more christian way of saying, like, have a life outside of your relationship, which I think is pretty common sense advice. Yeah. Yeah, like, it's pretty good advice, but I don't know why he's, like... <laughs> I don't know why he has to be like non-Christians don't know how to do like yep. I guess what I didn't include within this quote was like 
he was also like your marriage should be built around god and like you can't focus your marriage on your marriage you have to focus on your calling but more importantly on god yeah um otherwise it'll fall apart it goes back to the it's whole, just so annoying to me the whole assumption that like you can't have meaning in your life outside of their specific interpretation of like a relationship with god yeah exactly basically like non-believers are lazy and directionless yep and don't know how to make a relationship work and they're all unhappy <laughs> and hedonistic and you know yeah yeah. God forbid they be living um, fulfilling lives without the rules we've set forth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so that's gardening. Truly such a stretch. I don't <laughs> I don't know. I think he just wanted one to be like intriguing to people or whatever. Um the third one is sexuality, again pretty self explanatory and also predictable. Um, He says God created marriage as the context for sexuality, and sexuality is the glue that holds marriage together. But he also says that, quote, know that if you want to get married in order to have sex, that's not bad or shallow or selfish, as long as it's not the only reason you want to get married. I feel like people (laughs) will read the first part and the rest is this wah, 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 wah. A hundred percent. And I know so many people who have only read the first part. Yeah. And they're like, (laughs) it's just a well-known thing. Yeah. Oh, it's wild. Um, Yeah. I have so many thoughts about that, but they're all predictable. I don't know. Like, don't get married just to have sex. Like, if you want to have sex that bad, just have sex. I don't know. It's not a big deal. Anyway, the fourth one is family. (laughs) In this section... He goes into all these scary statistics about abortion and single parents and dads who aren't present, all to say that good Christian marriages usually include kids, but not always, but usually, but don't idolize kids, but having kids is one of the things marriage is for. Does he, he, he really goes back and forth. Does he throw in any like scary stats about like the birth rate declining, like some replacement theory, just like chilling in there? No, he didn't actually. It was mostly just like... About abortion and like non-present dads. Okay, hmm. few few little <laughs> dog whistles so in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fenway is climbing all over everything I own. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I think that what Christians found so exciting about this book when it came out. Uh, was that it reads really positive and exciting and like even kind of scandalous at times like he talks about sex in a really joyous way Mm -hmm. and says that god calls it very good but at the same time all his views are super traditional like he's not really challenging anything in a meaningful way he's just repackaging the same narrative that evangelical churches have been peddling for decades yep it's (laughs) uh i'm not like regular christian pastors i'm a cool christian pastor in that i took the same content and packaged it in a nice colorful book and Mm -hmm. said sex feels good you guys wink 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 (laughs) yeah yeah exactly um and i feel like yeah you get a really good sense of like what the church that i went to um in high school growing up was like (laughs) by looking at this book and their response to it like she loves no, she's you. just putting her tail on my mic. Uh, he says that there's a fifth reason for marriage, 
in the wake of the fall. So those first four were like God's original plan for marriage, but then Eve sinned. And so now we have to have this fifth reason. Um, And that is recreation. Um, This section was frankly very confusing to me, but it seems like he's just saying that marriage is about two broken people coming together to bring each other closer to God, which like bog standard stuff. Like, Wow. So, thank you, Mark, for that so predictable. wonderful yeah. insight. You're a white yeah, man. But you can't, yeah, you can't have a Christian book about marriage without saying that. So I get it. But uh, yeah, he also goes on to talk about happiness, which Christians have such a big issue with. For reasons that I don't really understand. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Are Christians all depressed? I don't know. Yes. (laughs) No, not all of them. Yeah. No. But but he makes it really clear that marriage is not about happiness. And if you go in wanting wanting it to make you happy, it won't. And you'll be disappointed. And only God can make you happy. And blah, blah, blah. Whatever. I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second and say that, sure, you're not going to be happy all the time if you get married because life happens and it sucks sometimes and, like, literally no one is happy all the time. But, excuse me, I'm a firm believer that your marriage or your relationship or whatever, you know, like, in whatever form it takes should by and large make you happy. (laughs) And there's... Like, literally nothing wrong with that. It's good. Like, there should be a net Um, good in your life. Yeah, for sure. If you, like, you shouldn't have to feel like you're trudging through mud in your relationship. Having someone around to show dumb memes to and to help take care of the cat and to remind you to put your mouth guard by your bed when you inevitably forget is really nice. (laughs) Um, You know, from personal experience, obviously. (laughs) And that is what relationships should be about. Like, if your relationship makes life feel harder, maybe it's not the relationship for you. Maybe it's the wrong time for you to be in a relationship, whatever it is. Like, your partner should be there to make life easier and more fun and vice versa. So that's my soapbox about marriage. (laughs) It should be fun and nice. (laughs) I don't know what Christians, uh, what their deal is with being happy, but... I guess we're all just too sinful. We can't be happy. I don't know what it is. I think happiness scares them because so much of Christianity, at least how it is in the modern evangelical church, is about control. And unhappy Mm -hmm. people are a lot easier to control than happy people. That's very true. Yeah. Good point. Um, I, on a funnier note... (laughs) Uh, you know, Mason, I should have pulled this up, Mason Menenga. Yes, follow him on Twitter. Yeah. Um, he tweeted, like, this morning or last night or something. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. He said, Bible college girls are like, marriage is so hard. Yeah, you married a 19-year-old evangelical man. Yep. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that one in there because it is really funny. Um, <laughs> kind of sums it up. Uh, yeah, so that's like most of the content I have. I wanted to end with some quotes from listeners. 
Uh, I asked people on social media last week to share what they were taught about marriage by the evangelical church. And I was honestly shocked by the number of responses we got. Um, So thank you so much to everyone who responded. And I just wanted to share a couple of those. Um, Most people mentioned specific expectations for women in marriage, which makes sense. Um, From submission to domesticity to reproduction. Uh, We go into a lot more detail about those expectations in other episodes, specifically our MLM, Weaponized Incompetence, and Compulsory Motherhood episodes. So if you're interested in those topics and haven't listened to those, check those out. Um, So I'm not going to also get into detail about that here, but I did want to share this quote from a listener because it was wild. So they said they were once told by a youth pastor's wife that, quote, one of the best things about submitting to her husband was she had no responsibility for decisions before God. <laughs> Which is so funny. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, yeah, what I wouldn't give to be a housewife and just have, like, no responsibilities. Just get to, like, cook all day or whatever. I like cooking. So, like, yeah, there are times not when... having to work sounds fine. I know. It sounds really nice. <laughs> but uh yeah um another thing that came up a few times is the idea of being unequally yoked (laughs) which i'm positive you've heard before uh how would you define that idea oh man well obviously the traditional interpretation is like don't marry a non-believer but um my parents again hashtag progressive but not really used it to interpret like you should have similar like giftings that are compatible i guess (laughs) then they would bring like i don't know myers-briggs into it and whatnot (laughs) of course they would that's amazing um do you know what verse it comes from pop quiz make your dad proud oh my goodness um unequally yoked probably that sounds like a paul thing yeah i think paul wrote corinthians right yes yes okay yeah nice i was gonna say yeah, second corinthians yeah second corinthians six fourteen Two says corinthians. do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness oh damn okay <laughs> it's so much yeah Um, Another passage that's often used, so that's like where the phrase unequally yoked comes from, but another passage that's often used to argue against Christians marrying non-Christians is 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, uh, which reads, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives, which to me honestly reads like, Women can marry non-Christians as long as they, like, convert them later. Missionary dating. (laughs) This is where it all started. (laughs) Yeah, truly. Um, But the phrase I really want to draw your attention to is that um, in the same way at the beginning. Um, That refers to a few verses before uh, 1 Peter 2.18, which says... (laughs) Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So wives, submit to your husbands in the same way slaves submit to their masters. 
is what this passage is saying. <laughs> Another great example of the Bible being an ancient book that we maybe don't need to take literally. In my naivety, I thought that you were going to be like, oh, yeah. And before it, it was saying, you know, men treat because I know there's like another verse that's like men treat your wives well. And in the same way, wives submit to your husbands. So I thought it was going to be one of yeah. those. But nah, slaves. Great. <laughs> Not this one. Yeah. No, there is another verse on that. I think it's in like Ephesians. I think that one's in Ephesians. Um it's like the popular evangelical wedding verse yep yeah so uh yikes (laughs) maybe don't take the bible literally just a thought um almost everyone who responded also mentioned divorce um most said it was either completely unacceptable or was only acceptable with evidence of cheating or abuse like we talked about before Um, One person said their dad was a pastor and refused to perform marriages for people who had been through a divorce. Wild, hard stands to take. Um, Another person said they were raised evangelical and their dad has Baptist roots. And they were taught that, quote, divorce is a sin, even if abuse is happening, even if there's no love, even if they both want a divorce. But yet, Um, look at what the divorce rate is in the evangelical church. Yeah, literally. It's because... the same as everywhere else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, like, divorce is fine, actually. <laughs> and it's almost um, like there are reasons people get divorced that are worth even, like, the, you know, estrangement from their community. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, And then one person who is divorced said, quote, I learned that it's not okay to be divorced and stay single. They can accept that you are divorced if the reason was bad enough, but the constant encouragement to date and get remarried is insane. And if you don't follow the encouragement, you are ostracized and invited to nothing. They also said that when they tried to join a small group at their church, they were told the only one they were allowed to join was a singles group that was essentially like a single and ready to mingle group of like people just wanting to like couple up. Yeah, those are just speed dating things, honestly. Yeah, truly. (laughs) Truly. Uh, Yeah. So those were some of the responses that we got. Thanks, everyone, for replying. Um, Yeah, so takeaways. We normally have, like, a what do we do about this section, which, like, in the last couple episodes we haven't had, because, like, what do you do about communism? (laughs) Um, And also, similarly, like, what do you do about purity culture? Like, there aren't a lot of tangible things that we can do. Um, It's all really personal. So, like, if you grew up with the doctrines of purity culture, I think the best way to start, like, dismantling it is just kind of trying to look at what you were taught and figure out what you do and don't want to take with you and like what you do and don't agree with and the ways that like those things have been harmful to you or other people um if you're looking for some good books to read i definitely recommend church Two by emily joy allison and then another one is good christian sex by bromley mcclenahan i think is how you say her name um other than that uh like, if you feel safe to do so, try to speak out against purity culture, <laughs> like, when you encounter it. Uh, like we talked about, it 
it being purity culture enables and creates a culture of abuse and abuse thrives in silence so just normalizing talking about it will help dismantle it naturally um so yeah that is all i have for today this is the first part of a two-parter on marriage and like i said episode like i said episode like i said earlier the next episode, I'll be going into sexuality a little more and the evangelical crusade against gay marriage. So, yeah. Any closing thoughts from you? I would just like to say another great book is Pure by Linda K. Klein um, and the blog God, Sex, and Rich People by Maddie Jo Kausert. Um, and personally, I do also feel like one of the biggest antidotes to purity culture is embracing sex positivity. Um, mm-hmm. kind of just like working through the stuff to try to get to like a neutral understanding is good. But for me personally, it's like you need more than just neutrality to help counteract all the negative messaging. Um, yeah. So whatever sex positivity looks like for you, I'd say run headlong in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Britt for joining us today and filling in for victoria this was super fun thanks for having um, me yeah i always love hearing your perspective on things um you're much more articulate than i am no (laughs) not at all (laughs) i have to have all my notes written down (laughs) but um but yeah this was super fun um do you want to say our tagline with me Yes. The may your thoughts stay dirty. Yes, yes, yes. Thing. All right. May, may your, your thoughts, thoughts stay, stay dirty. dirty. <laughs> Bye. Bye.